I'm Kim Reynolds of Dogman.com with Chris Vetter, Scott Eklund. I am in Houston, Texas, where the uh, weather's cooperating. It cooperated with us last week down in New Orleans and cooperating with us again this week down in Houston, where you know a lot of people were saying it could get hot and humid real quick. But temperatures in the high 50s, low 60s, um, expecting a little bit of rain today, but it shouldn't matter. We are in a covered dome stadium. The stadium, by the way, had a chance to visit that on Saturday. Spectacular stadium. So um, it was interesting. Some of the guys were pointing out that they've had some final fours in that stadium. So kind of showing me the layout um, where they would put the basketball court. And unlike the Superdome and the old Kingdome, where those roofs were pretty much, uh, you know, not let any sunlight in a lot of sunlight being let in with this stadium so you're getting a a lot of natural light but uh we're down in houston texas guys can you know chris you know i put in our the prediction we've been doing this for so long we've been through so much we started dogman.com april 1st 1997 and there was a lot of pre-work that went into it back into 96 but we're on our eighth head coach we've seen a lot of ups we've seen a lot of downs and uh it's just having a hard time wrapping my head around what's really going on i think once this game is over we may have a better appreciation of what's happened this year 100 percent, and I, I don't think there's any question of that just because of the quick turnaround and that's been a big that's been kind of a big storyline this week when you know you guys have talked during the media day on saturday i, I noticed one of the common questions that you were asking was just how are you guys dealing with the quick turnaround because I think the, last year it was more like two weeks, 10 days at least. And so to, to be able to literally go from one Monday to the next and to, to go back to Seattle, get a couple practices in, and then go back down to Texas and and, and play a game in a couple days, um, that's pretty unusual. And so to, we'll, we'll see who kind of best deals with the intangible parts of all this stuff because that's that's a huge that's a huge factor of how this game's going to go tonight well the other thing that's kind of wild chris too is you know last week we're in new orleans and we're staying at the sheraton downtown the team hotel for texas was across the street the team hotel for washington was a couple blocks away a lot of the events were you know within a block or two the stadium is was walkable less than a mile down here in houston everything is spread out i mean this it's sprawl down here we're getting on shuttles to go to the stadium and it's taken a half hour. It's 45 minutes to an hour to the airport where um, the media hotel, we're about eight miles away from where the team hotel is. We had uh, a media day uh, down in the convention center, and that was a half hour drive. So everything we're having to do is busing. And the team is, too. And the stadium is a ways away um, as well. So it's just a lot more spread out down here where Last week down in New Orleans, everything was so close. And, you know, I remarked about it before that Sugar Bowl down there, that's a well-oiled machine. They've been doing that for quite some time. But the turnaround down here in Houston, they had a short notice on who the teams were going to be, where the Sugar Bowl had a lot of a lot of uh, advance notice. And it's just seems like a a lot more scrambling and running around down here, not only for us, but the teams and the officials as well. By the way, just uh, saw Cam Cleland. He's not staying here. I showed him to the hospitality room. Cam Cleland went in and destroyed the hospitality room. That boy can eat. So (laughs) anyways. Okay. well, I was going to say the other thing that that, that it was different about New Orleans compared to Houston is that you were also dealing with you mentioned the, the sleep factor maybe the night before the game. That was New Year's Eve. Yeah. You don't have to worry about any of that nonsense in Houston. I mean, Sunday night, I, what's going on on January 7th? You know, I mean, so you just I think I think, you know, the, the sprawl, like you said, Kim, as well as the timing of the event, I think makes it so that these guys should get plenty of rest, plenty of rest. Well, yeah, it's something that wasn't said a lot you know, after the win last week. You know, what time did that game get over? I can't even remember, but uh, quite a bit of the team hit Bourbon Street after the win. Yeah, well, uh, if I remember correctly, the last play happened like right before nine o'clock our time. Pretty sure yeah. it was pretty close to that. Yeah. So, yeah. So 11 o'clock here and. Yeah, the boys went out and hit it. I know Carson Bruner and his family went out and quite a few others. I don't think you're going to – 
I don't think you're going to see that tonight regardless. Again, this place is just so spread out. I've never been to Houston before. It's pretty script right out. And speaking of Houston, I texted you this this morning. Um, Reggie Williams lives down here. So for those who don't know, there's a Scott Eklund that works for the University of Washington, who's a photographer and a Scott Eklund that works for us, of course. And they're always getting confused where our Scott's always getting asked to do um you know, wedding photo shoots. <laughs> yeah, photo shoots. And the other Scott Eklund, he's getting constantly hounded, hounded about recruiting stuff. And uh, I got a text from Reggie. Where's your boy, Scott Eklund? I, he's got some photos I need. And I'm trying to explain to him there's two Scott Eklunds. And Reggie had a tough time wrapping his head around that. So it was kind of funny. He he goes, what do you mean there's two Scott Eklunds? I said, there's two Scott Eklunds. I just want my pictures, Kim. Okay, well, it's the other Scott Eklund. What other Scott Eklund? It was kind of funny. So uh, Well, yeah. I, I have friends that I've known for 30, 40 years that still ask me, so are you shooting photos at the <laughs> University of Washington? I'm like, yes, and I have not told you that. <laughs> yes. It, it's like, really? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. 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 Just being around the team, uh, the little that I have, um, seem pretty relaxed. Um, you know, just at the media day on Saturday, they, uh, it was just pretty relaxed. They, uh, yeah, it's just another game for them. They seem like they're ready to go. And, you know, it's, uh, a, I guess a short turnaround. They don't have a lot of time to think about it, but, uh, you know, you got to listen to quite a bit of it, Chris, you heard Jamarcus Shepard, you heard, you know, Troy Fatanu, you heard Michael Penix, but just kind of what's your takeaway, you know, from back home that you're kind of sensing from all of this? Well, I think it stems all from Kalen DeBoer, right? I mean, he is the, the, the generalissimo of this whole, this whole thing. I mean, and it's everything that he is about kind of filters down through the program. And when these guys talk about treating their process, and it's not like they're treating the game like it's different than all other games, because everyone knows that it's different from all other games. What they're trying to do is they're trying to not deviate from their process. They're not trying to, they're, they're, you know, even though it is bigger than the Arizona State game or bigger than the Washington State game, they're not trying to treat it any differently than those games. And that's an edict that DeBoer feels very, very strongly about. And so I think keeping these guys in their same mode, in their same work week, in their same patterns and behaviors and everything like that, I think is absolutely crucial to DeBoer and how he thinks yeah. these guys will be able to perform at their maximum. Yeah, and the Michigan fans, and you've probably noticed it on social media in that um, they've been pretty respectful towards Washington. They realize that this is going to be a really good football game. Of course, you're going to have knuckleheads and knuckle draggers on each side of the fence, but the respect for Washington seems to, uh, you know, be genuine. And, you know, a lot of people mentioning it's going to be wild, just not only playing in this game, but October 5th, the rematch in Husky Stadium. Yeah, Yeah, it's going to be crazy. I mean, how often does that happen? Where you've got a national championship and then they play in the season, the next season. Yeah, it it doesn't happen often. If it, you know, I I couldn't tell you. I didn't Washington uh, in 1985 play BYU right after BYU essentially stole that. Uh, yeah. National yeah. champion and and they just destroyed Washington too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I remember that game and you know, but it doesn't happen very often. And so this is going to be. This is going to be a lot of fun um, uh, later tonight and also next year uh, when they when they come to town, because, I mean, I know that it's part of a whole new package and a whole new reason why they're playing out here. But it's kind of the return trip that we never got because of the covid season. You know, they, they were supposed to be here and it got canceled and and then uh, Washington went there in 2021 and they never rescheduled. And, you know, some people think that that was you know, for foreshadowing on their part, but I don't know if they thought that far ahead. But uh, no, I I I have seen nothing but respect from most of the Michigan fans and most of the Husky fans. You know, they know this is these two teams are very evenly matched and um, strength against strength. Yeah. And and I think it's just going to go out there. And I I want to see a great game. I don't want to see 
um, you know, a team blow out. I want to see a great game. We saw two great semifinals. I'd like to see a great uh, national championship game with obviously with, it'd be more fun to watch Washington win, but I just want to see a great game where uh, both teams are playing to the top of their potential and see who comes out on top. I don't know if you guys could hear that. Could you hear that roar in the background? A little bit. Yeah. Uh, I looked down and I've never seen so many motorcycles in my life going by the hotel. Hundreds, hundreds filling the whole street. But yeah, and they're still going. That roar you hear, I thought it was an airplane, but it's motorcycles. <laughs> hey, Tim, real quick, um, you mentioned the future schedules. You mentioned how Washington and Michigan are going to be playing in Seattle in October. Uh, did you guys happen to see the rest of, of Michigan's non-conference schedule by chance? No. So they play Arkansas State, which obviously Washington had played a few years ago. But the other two non-conference games that they're hosting in Ann Arbor – on, on August 31st, they're playing Fresno State. And on the 7th of September, they're playing Texas. Yeah. It's just weird how these things go around. It's just really, really weird. Yeah, and I was, uh, I did some, um, I had a conversation with a, a guy from the uh, Atlanta paper who's writing a, a thing on the Pac-12, the demise of the Pac-12. And, you know, we were talking about, you know, we're giving up uh, Phoenix and Tucson for Madison, Wisconsin. We're giving up uh, Tucson for Iowa City. We're giving up San Francisco for Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're giving up L.A. for Columbus, Ohio. You know, so uh, he asked me what my biggest takeaway is. And I said, well, I won't need as much sunscreen. But, you know, talking quite a bit. And I, I had a chance to talk to Reese Davis on Saturday as well. And I don't know how you guys feel about this. And I asked him about, you know, what he felt that the impact of West Coast football was going to have on the Big Ten next year. And he said he thinks it's going to be pretty dramatic when, you know, Washington, Oregon, um USC and UCLA come into the Big Ten with their high-powered offense. You know, those teams like Iowa that are trying to win games, you know, 10, 12 to 10 or 17 to 14. It's going to be real interesting on how these high-flying offenses really mesh into this conference who tends to focus on, you know, big, like they say, big boy, tough guy football, you know, and play physical brand. And it's all about the defense. Well, if you if you listen to Michigan fans – They'll tell you that the roster construction that took place, and, and ironically enough, it started with Courtney Morgan, who's now Washington CEO. And I don't think it's ever been a case where the guy who was essentially responsible for the roster construction at both finalists happens to be the same guy. I mean, that is just crazy. And so massive respect and, and compliments to Courtney because that's that's pretty special. But just in and of itself – Michigan fans are telling everyone that this lineup for the Wolverines was completely done in response to try to beat Ohio State when they had high-flying offenses, when they had Stroud and they had, you know, Chris Olave and, and some of these other guys that, you know, tw in 2020 and 2021 and, and, and these high-flying offenses that Ohio State was putting together because they hadn't beaten them. And then Michigan's now beaten them. So, um that's why I think Michigan fans feel really, really confident about, about playing this Washington team tonight because they feel like Michigan or uh, Washington and Ohio State match up pretty well. So we'll see how that actually ends up in theory because I don't think that any of the the Ohio State quarterbacks, in terms of being a college quarterback, I'm not talking about in terms of what they've ended up being like in the NFL and things like that, but I'm talking about just straight college quarterbacks and the impact a quarterback can play in this particular game tonight. They have not seen a quarterback like Michael Penix. Yeah. And when we talk about this matchup, Scott, we talk about the, um, the Michigan offense and a lot of the talk down here is does Michigan have enough offense to keep up with the explosiveness of Washington? Washington's liability is probably on the defensive side of the ball. And I took a look that, um, and I think, you know, you'd probably agree with me 
one of the key things for Washington is going to be that third down efficiency. Can they stop Michigan on those third downs? Because I think they rank, I think Washington ranks number 84 in the country on stopping their opponents on third down. Now, granted, that might be skewed quite a bit from those first couple of games, but I think that's going to be the big key is that explosiveness because we've seen Washington on those third and seven, third and eights and giving up and getting gashed by 10 and 12 yard runs. But I think that's going to be the key, Scott. Do they have enough explosiveness to score to keep up with Washington's offense? Well, I, I don't think they do. But the thing is, um, they won't need to if they can grind things out on the ground. And if Washington is used to getting, I don't know uh, if there's a number out there, but the possessions per game for Washington is probably somewhere, what, 11, 12 per game, whatever it is. And if they can limit Washington to eight possessions, that's going to be huge in Michigan's favor. And and how's that going to happen? That's going to happen by handing the ball to Blake Corum and getting behind that offensive line and letting him grind things out. And so Washington's going to have, I mean, Thule is going to have to be huge. Ale is going to be have to, is going to have to be huge. Fa'atui Tuitele is going to have to be huge. Jacob Bandis, those guys are going to have to be just uh, bricks in the middle of that in the middle of that defensive line where they don't get moved and they and they they don't allow gaps to open and and then Braylon Trice and Zion Tupuola Fatui are going to have to be really good against the run and and um, you know Sakai and and Jacob Lane and all these other guys who play they're going to have to be good against the run because if Washington's going to win this game. They've got to stop Blake Corum from. I'm not saying you have to hold him under 100 yards, but you can't let him get, you know, six, seven, eight, nine yards per carry, uh, especially when he's averaging 4.7 for the season. And uh, un, because unlike what Texas and Oregon did, where they were gashing Washington, but instead their their quarterback friendly. Uh, offensive coordinators decided, well, now that we've got these big runs, now we're going to start opening it up and throwing it. Well, Michigan has no problem running it 40 straight times if they have to. And that is something that would bode horribly for Washington. Well, and, and Jim Harbaugh yesterday said that J.J. McCarthy is the best quarterback he ever coached. Chris, you buying that hype? Mm. No, no, I'm not actually. Uh, especially yeah, the number one coached, overall draft. I was gonna say, especially when he coached Andrew Luck. So, yeah. um, and but but to the point in terms of what you guys were talking about in terms of what Jim Harbaugh is capable of doing, we saw it in Harbaugh's final year when I think they beat Washington like forty to nothing or forty-one to seven or whatever it was, and then David Shaw the following year followed that blueprint with Andrew Luck and put 65 up on the Huskies. They run their power, they run their counter. And if you can't stop it, they're not going to stop running it until you figure out a way to stop it. And and so that's Harbaugh's where it's interesting that because Harbaugh obviously is a quarterback and but yet he will run to win. And he that he will not stop running it if you can't figure out a way to stop it. And he won't necessarily go away from it much like Texas did with Sark, kind of a fatal flaw with Sarkeesian is that he doesn't stick with those types of things. And um, Harbaugh has no problem with that. <laughs> Harbaugh, he's shown it historically and Washington has seen it. They saw it up close and personal at Stanford. Yeah. Uh, Scott, tell me a little bit. You've probably watched a little bit more film on uh, Michigan than I have. Tell me about what you've seen with Michigan's passing game. It's it's I don't want to call it pedestrian. They they run some routes, but they aren't going to that they're their passing game is set up by their running game. I mean, Roman Wilson is their big play guy. He's got 45 receptions, he, uh, 735 yards and 12 touchdowns. But, I mean, he leads in all three of those categories. And on Washington, he'd be like third or fourth on the on the team. Now, completely different offenses and they, you know, whatever. But, you know, I, I just I, – I don't see an explosive passing game. I think – uh, Colston Loveland, their, uh, their tight end is a guy that they use a lot. Like they use uh, Washington uses Jack Westover. He's got 42 receptions, 585 yards. Um, I don't know, four or five touchdowns, whatever it is. And, um, and then Cornelius Johnson is the next highest wide receiver, 44 for 579 and one touchdown. 
And then after that, no one has more. Uh, there's someone has 30, 22 receptions, 21. They just don't throw the ball that much. And it's because they haven't needed to throw the ball that much. The biggest thing for Washington is if they can get out to that early lead, kind of like what they did against Texas, kind of like what they did against Oregon, I think Michigan could feel the pressure to start maybe scoring a little bit quicker and keeping up with Washington. If Washington doesn't score quickly and they get in a grinded out game, that definitely benefits Michigan. Chris, we've heard it all year. You know, the dynamic offensive line, excuse me, offensive line of Oregon, the offensive line, uh, Utah, the offensive line for USC, Oregon. Again, we've heard it all year long. And now we're dealing with, you know, the offensive line at University of Michigan. But, you know, you take a look at their schedule and, you know, they played Ohio State. But other than that, they really haven't played anybody. It's fair. I mean, if you're going to look at one team that's battle tested tonight, it's Washington. It's not it's not Michigan. I mean, Michigan fans can say all they want, but they've basically just played Ohio State, Penn State and Alabama. And that's great. I mean, that that's top notch competition. There's absolutely no question about that. But that's three teams. Washington could match double that, at least the number of teams, uh, whether they were ranked at that particular time, what have you. Um, to me, I don't think there's much of a comparison. So there's no question that what Michigan's going to see tonight is definitely it's it's not something different because I, I think Washington kind of presents some similar challenges. But I think what you're going what Washington's going to see from Michigan in some ways is probably the same type of of passing offense that Alabama kind of presented to Michigan. They're very statistically kind of the same, and they use it the same way to to supplement their run attack and and much as what Scott said because if you look at those numbers you know it's much like Texas's secondary yeah the reason why Texas gave up a lot of yards through the pass is because you know no one could run against them and so you look at some of these things that are happening with Michigan basically a lot of people think that Michigan is just Texas's defense but with better DBs because we've seen what Michigan can do on that front seven I think they're much more balanced than Texas is. Uh, Texas was up front because Texas has those two big uglies up front in Sweat and, and, and Byron Murphy. Yeah. Well, Michigan's got three guys that they can put in the interior, and then they supplement them with guys on the edges that are really, really good. Whereas with Texas's ends, I don't think they really presented much of a problem to Troy Faltanu and Roger Rosengarten. And yeah. to be fair, Faltanu and Rosengarten are two of the best tackles in the entire country. So you could also argue that maybe Michigan hasn't seen tackles quite like this all year long. Yeah, but staying on the offensive side of the ball, you know, when we're taking a look at these this Michigan offensive line, Scott, does this Michigan offensive line compare to anybody that you've seen on the schedule? To me, they seem like Utah. Uh, they Utah or Oregon. Um, they they mash you a little bit more like Utah does rather than what Oregon does, which is pulling and trapping and doing a lot of other things like that. But uh, Michigan can still pull and trap. Don't get me wrong. It's just that they they want to just mash you. But they against Ohio State, they lost their best offensive lineman. And I'm drawing a blank on his name, but they lost their their Zitter. leader. Yeah. And he he he's done. And so, you know, I'm not saying that the guy that is that they got to replace him as a scrub. He obviously wasn't because of what they were able to do to Alabama's offensive line. But, um, yeah, I mean, Washington needs he needs to take advantage of the fact that they got some someone new in there and he's only had one game of reps uh, with the first unit really for the most part. So, um, you know, Washington uh, has, has an opportunity to do some things, but it, it's really going to be, especially early on, I think Michigan's going to do their best to establish that running game. And if they can establish the running game, then it could be a very long ga- uh, long day on the field for Washington. I think, honestly, I, I think that Michigan, like if Utah had not lost Cam Rising, if they had not, if they had had a healthy Jaquindon Jackson, for instance, I think Utah would be a great comp right now for what they would present similar to what Michigan is going to show tonight offensively. Yeah, Scott, do you think they're going to ride Blake Corum or do you think they're going to rotate in? Well, I mean, he's the, he's the bell cow for them. I mean, they've got uh, Donovan Edwards, who's a really good running back too, but Blake Corum is the guy. I mean, Donovan Edwards has less than half of the carries that Blake Corum has, and he has one third of the yardage that, that Corum has. So, 
Um, I just I, I don't I see Blake Corum. He's their bell cow. He's the one that they've always relied on. He destroyed Washington, if I remember correctly, in the in the 2021 game. That was the one where uh, Cameron Fabi Kulanen d- took a terrible angle, and he what did he go for about 65, 70 yards? Whatever I was going to say, was. I think they had two running backs go over 150. Yeah, one of them was Haskins, right? Yeah, the other one was Haskins. So, um, but yeah, I I, I think Corum is going to be the guy that's going to get a majority of the carries. Now, if things get out of hand for what for the the um, Wolverines, I think they'll they'll rotate in Edwards, give him quite a few carries, keep Corum and Edwards fresh. But I think for the most part, Corum's going to be the guy who sees most of the most of the carries. Yeah, before we start talking about the Washington offense versus the um, Michigan defense, uh, a little surprised at the uniform combinations for both teams. No. Not at all. Not no, at all. I think I think the all whites is perfect. I think that's what they wore at Michigan State, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Why I not, mean, why not, and why not is, is Michigan, Michigan is all blue or are they blue and yellow? All blue. All blue. Yeah. I, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. One no, thing I, just, I would say real quick, Kim, but putting a bow on this, this, this comparison between Michigan's offense and Washington's defense, I think the game plan is much the same as it was against Texas. I think bottom line is you've got two very, very competent, very efficient quarterbacks in Quinn Ewers and JJ McCarthy. I think you've got two competent running games and explosive guys uh, out wide, whether you're talking about Xavier Worthy for Texas or Roman Wilson for Michigan. I think bottom line is Washington has to take advantage of the opportunities when they are able to get Michigan behind the sticks, whether it's a penalty, whether they stuff them a couple times. They just cannot allow them to be able to move the chains and keep Michael Penix and that offense, Washington's offense, off the field. They have to get back on the field. And the other thing is, is that if if there is a situation where they can get McCarthy off his spot and maybe he throws uh, an off pass here and there that might be able to get picked, you got to make that pick. I mean, you look at you look at the, one of the very first plays in that first series against Alabama. He almost throws a pick. He he did throw a pick, but the but the Alabama kid was out of bounds. You got to you've got to be able to take these opportunities to be able to get off the field and put Washington's offense on the field because if you don't and you allow and ex- allow Michigan to extend and and keep that game going in their favor, they're going to take advantage of that. They're going to slow things down. They're going to extend, and they're not going to allow Washington to get explosive. Yeah, when you talk about Washington's offense versus Michigan's defense, you know, and I talked about it, you know, we've heard this all before, the elite defenses. Oregon's defense is really good. Utah's defense is really good. Oregon State's defense is really good. USC's should have been good, but that was a disaster. Arizona turned out to have a pretty good defense and, you know, played Oregon twice. And the Texas defense was supposed to be really good. They haven't been able to slow Washington. There's only one thing that has slowed Washington down all year long. Washington? There's only one thing that has slowed Washington and stopped Washington all year long. And that was the flu bug that ravaged the team for two weeks, for two solid yeah. weeks. And that was the only thing. And a lot of people just don't understand, you know, those two weeks, how much the team was ravaged. And I talked to you about Michael Penix after that Stanford game, and he was a mess, you know. And uh, every time I got a little tickle in my throat after being in that small room with Michael, coughing, hacking, wheezing, I was worried about it. he gave it to me. But the flu pretty much ravaged that team for two solid weeks. That's been the only thing that's been able to slow Washington down all year. Yeah, Yeah, I'm curious because, you know, obviously the Stanford game was where you saw it the most pronounced. I'm wondering how he was affected against Arizona State and how much of that was Arizona State just really kind of clouding things up for him and making it difficult down the field for him. Because I think a lot of people, when I've seen the film study and people talk about it, they talk about that Arizona State game as being one of the key moments where a defense has been able to get Penix off his spot and get him maybe second guessing a little bit. And like I said, I don't know how much of that was due to what they were doing and how much of that was just him not feeling good and just well, not being right. Not just that. He didn't have one of his top three receivers in that game either. I mean, right. that was a game that Jalen uh, McMillan didn't even play in. Right. You know, he tried to play in other games. He That was a game he didn't even play in. Been rumors 
all year long since the Oregon game about Michael Penix and having a rib injury. Um, there been rumors about that all year long, but with that long layoff and getting to uh, the Sugar Bowl, it not only helped Michael Penix, but Michael Penix looked like a different guy with the three weeks of rest. Jalen McMillan, you know, he was no longer Jalen McMillan in the Texas game. J-Mac was back. And a lot of these guys who've been nursing bangs and bruises and all of that, they're going to be back to 100% full strength. Uh, Asa Turner's got the big club off of his hand, but, you know, Michigan's going to be healthy too. But you take a look at Michael Penix, Chris, and you, I, it wasn't hard to believe that he had something going on with his ribs. Well, the conspiracy theorists out there are, are licking their chops and they're, and, they're, and they're telling you, I told you so. Because, you know, there's no one that thought the Sugar Bowl was a get right game for Michael Penix. But that's exactly what it turned out to be. And, you know, a lot of people are going to say, well, that's because he had time to heal up, rest up and get right. And, you know, it's hard to argue against that now because he showed everyone the side of him that we all saw very, very early in the season. Like in, he hadn't thrown that well since September, honestly. Yeah. And, and just in terms of just production, being able to throw on platform, off platform, on the run, be able to mix things up. And, and to also have the, the ground game with it a little bit, not so much with Dylan Johnson at that point, but to be able to have enough run game to really be able to uh, make that Washington offense even go even better and be even more explosive when they were able to take their shots. So, yep. yeah, I mean, I hadn't seen him throw the ball that well since September, and that bodes well for tonight's game, obviously. Yeah, and Scott, his ability to slip and slide, he didn't – I don't – he got touched, but he didn't get hit, you know, so he was slipping, sliding, avoiding the pressure, and as well as he ran the ball, you know, yeah. and every, every time he runs the ball, I think we all hold our breath. Yeah, and a couple, you know, a couple of those were read, read option plays where he could hand it off, but he decided to follow uh, one of his linemen right up the middle, and he, he gashed them for a couple of nice big gains. I think he had three rushes for 19 yards, whatever that was, and uh, they were, those are big, and um, the other thing is, Kim, you talk about him um, not really getting touched. There was that one where Byron Murphy basically had a free run at him, and he just sidestepped him to the right through a perfect completion to, I think it was Rome, across the middle. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, he's just – he's adept at doing that. That's what he can do. And, and, and Washington isn't going to hold up perfectly against uh, Michigan. Michigan has gotten – I think the stat I saw was that – on their opponents' dropbacks uh, this season, Michigan has gotten pressure on the quarterback. Now, that's depending on how you you determine pressures, but has pressured the quarterback 48% of the time. That's the best in the country. I think the next best was Oregon, which was like at, I want to say like 38%, whatever it was. Yeah. And, I mean, it was – that's a ridiculous number, that's almost nice. half of the dropbacks. So that's something that Washington's really going to have to be careful about. Scott, when we're talking about the pressure, the, you know, the word is that Washington's going to see a lot more pressure on the edges where against Texas, it was a lot more pressure up the middle. And I actually think that benefits Washington because the pressure from the edges, the two best offensive linemen are the two tackles Washington has. And the interior is where the problem has been is getting Michael Penix up the middle, you know, that pressure up the middle. And that's why I think we're going to see a lot more stunts and shifts and maybe them try to get pressure with their ends up the middle instead of on the edges like they've been known for. Yeah, yeah, that I mean that's the case. So, uh, you know, just looking at the stats, Jalen Harrell and has leads the team with six and a half sacks. Josiah Stewart has five and a half sacks. Then uh, Derek Moore has five, and Braden McGregor has four and a half. Those are your top four guys, and those are all linebackers. Like I, I'm assuming some are edges and you know stand ups and how they do all those kind of things. So, um, you just yeah, I mean, Michigan, the one thing that people have said about Michigan is they aren't going to blow you away with a guy with big numbers or anything like that, but they rush well as a unit where they get that pressure from the edges and then they get that push right in the middle that doesn't allow the quarterback to step up. And when quarterbacks can't step up, that is big as well. And so Washington is going to – the interior, Parker Brailsford, Nate Halepo, Julius Bulow – Gear and Hatchet when he gets in, those guys are going to have their hands full and trying to make sure that they can keep 
Michigan pass rushers out of the lap of Michael Penix. Because if they can, I think Washington's going to be able to throw some for some yards and score some touchdowns through the passing game. And Chris, Michigan's defense is good. And Washington has only allowed 11 quarterback sacks on Michael Penix in 14 games. And I think Michigan's going to be good, but I think that a lot of people are maybe overestimating um, Michigan versus a very, very, very good Washington offensive line. Well, it's certainly strength on strength. It's going to be a massive battle in the trenches because you look at a lot of the, what the Michigan guys are saying in terms of the media and whatnot. You look at that the, the, the three, basically the top three interior guys and their top three edge guys. So the edge guys like Harold, McGregor, and Moore – and then Jenkins, Graham, and Grant inside, they're saying all six of those guys are NFL guys. Well, Washington clearly hasn't played a team where all the interior or all the guys up front were NFL guys. And we're not even talking about Colson and Barrett, the linebackers. They'll bring it any time. I think the key is what does Michigan feel like they can get away with? Because they're, they're a heavy pressure team. They're going to want to pressure with more than five guys at a, a lot of times. So not only is a guy like Dylan Johnson going to be extremely important for pass protection, and we, we needed to talk about Dylan Johnson, but um, also the tight ends. Are they going to stay in to max protect, or can they be a factor down the field too? So can Washington use their communication that they've been known for all year long up front, be able to hand things off when these guys start playing games on them, when they twist and stunt and all that stuff, can they stay solid and give Michael Penix the pocket he needs? Because they weren't able to do that necessarily up the middle against Texas. But they, but Penix was able to see what was going and had enough time to be able to slide, to be able to have a, a game plan, to, to still be able to get that ball off because he, we know how quick he is getting the ball off. And so it's going to be such a chess match within that within that football game because there's no doubt that as good as Washington's offensive line is, Joe Moore Award winners, the Heisman Trophy of the offensive line, Michigan's their front is going to give them something that they haven't seen all year long. Will Washington be able to run the football? Do they need to run the football? Yes. Yes and yes. Yes, they absolutely need to run the football, even if it's just enough to keep uh, the Michigan's defense honest to keep their edges. You know, when, when you have a little bit of RPO or a little bit of the inside outside zone stuff, you've got to be able to slow down their ends a little bit and to keep them honest a little bit. I think the key is what Washington showed in the RPO game. And even a couple of those designed runs that Ryan Grubb gave to Michael Penix added that little wrinkle. Now that Michigan is going to have to account for that is a huge part of this because Regardless of, of, of how good Dylan Johnson's going to be tonight, and, and I just think that the way it's going to be is he's going to get that first run, and he's going to he's going to know within five seconds whether he's got it tonight or whether he doesn't. It's just it's going to be that simple. He's either he's either going to have it, he's either going to be able to help uh per, you know create some production for Washington in that area, or he's going to have to allow guys like Tybal Rogers and Will Nixon and some of the other running backs to take over and, and, and be those next men up because he's going to know right away, I think, but they, they definitely need something. One of the things that I think is going to be key tonight, and I thought it was going to be key versus Texas as well is, you know, getting those uh, defensive linemen to run. And that's where I think, you know, going into the season, you know, you guys told me, and it was kind of a crazy stat that Dylan Johnson went into the beginning of the season with more career receptions than Romo Dunsey and, um, and Jalen McMillan. Now, if they can get some swing passes out there, this is where I think Jer- Jeremy Bernard could be a key factor in getting these little swing passes and these, uh, which are basically runs, and getting you know the fly sweeps going to uh, Jalen McMillan, Romo Dunsey, and um, you know Jeremy Bernard. You know, and stretching the field horizontally before breaking it up the middle. I think that's going to be key, especially if they can get a couple of swing passes to Dylan uh, Dylan Johnson. Yeah, I think I think you know the, the, those are all important. I think they will try to stretch these guys a little bit horizontally. I think they're going to make a bigger attempt to try to beat them vertically, obviously. But you look at their linebackers like Colson and Barrett, and like even the nickel, the Sainer still. Um, those guys are everywhere. Those guys run around like crazy, and so to be able to try to beat them sideline to sideline, I don't know if Washington's going to have a ton of success doing that, but I think they're certainly going to try to at least give them some looks so they can, they can play off them later. 
it'd be fun to look at Ryan Grubb's playlist for for today's game. But also, again, I you know one of the keys to the game is the guy who's just stepped up, and it just seems like every time he makes a catch, it's a it's a key catch, and that's Jack Westover at tight end. Absolutely, absolutely. He's just, I mean, is he going to be healthy though? And you know that's a that's a big question. I think heading into to, tonight's game is how healthy is he going to be? Kim, thankfully you're there and you're going to be able to see beforehand if he's even out there warming up because I've heard some things that he might not even play. Did so, you? But did you hear what Dylan Johnson said last week before the Sugar Bowl? Thank no. Goodness, thank goodness for medicine. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. And I I would be shocked if he doesn't suit up and try and go. But how effective will he be? And if that's the case, then you're going to need Devin Culp. You're going to need uh, Josh Cuevas, Quentin Moore. Those guys are all going to need to step up and take some spots because, I mean, Jack Westover, I think, had five catches last week, and three of them went for first downs, and all of them were key first downs too. And so, yeah, I I, I love uh, watching Westover do his thing because, Chris, I you know, you, you remember you and I standing on the sideline talking to Jordan Pow Pow when we found out that Jack Westover was going to, walk on and he goes dude please don't report that <laughs> yeah i don't know well, but i, mean, I don't want anybody to know them. you you saw those guys on saturday when you saw dylan johnson walking around when you saw westover walking around what have you what 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 were you thinking what were you thinking do you think they're going to be okay what do you think me yeah I, I didn't see anything out of the out of the norm jack being his usual aw shucks you know mentality he looked fine and Dylan Johnson, you know, he said, you know, cut off my leg and I'll still find a way to play. You know, he's just I mean, I don't know. If anything, I saw Devin Colt run into Devondre Sweat and I thought he was done. Literally. I thought that was the end of his career. <laughs> well, it was kind of like I mean, I'm joking, but it did it, it, it looked like, whoa, it looked like he literally ran into a brick wall. Well, no, it was kind of like, you know, getting hit by a Cadillac. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> the corner he got hit by the corner of a Cadillac, you know, or a big old Lincoln marquee. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not hearing anything. I didn't see anything out of the unusual on Saturday. So, um, you know, we'll see. You know, I'll, I'll be in the stadium before the team gets there. I'll be there bright and early. I got some radio stuff to do. I got some TV stuff to do with CBS. So uh, I'll get there bright and early and just, you know, make sure you, you're checking the message boards on dogman.com. That's where we're going to put all that stuff. But, uh you know, I think it's also going to be interesting, and you, we, we've yet to talk about the strength of this team, you know, with a little bit with Michael Penix, but these wide receivers, they're ready to go. I mean, they're four or five, four or five deep, you know, with uh, uh, Giles Jackson asking him about his former teammates on the other side, and he really didn't want to talk too much about it, but, you know, Giles Jackson, I think, is going to be ready to go, so that's your fourth wide receiver or your fifth wide receiver with Jeremy Bernard in there, and Rome seems ready to go. And by the way, it was a real interesting uh, post that Will Conroy put out on Twitter that you uh, put out there, Chris. Tell people a little bit about that. Well, yeah, and I don't remember. <clears throat> Will didn't really give a time frame on this. Like, was it literally right when Rome got to school? I can't remember. He said he said it was the first day. Was yeah. it first first day literally on campus? That's what he said. I yeah, he, sworn he, that's what it said. He go, he goes to Will and asks him if he's the if he's the basketball kind of player development guy, and he's like, sure, yeah, I can help you and. And he goes, yeah, I need to learn how to box out so I can take care of these these little little DBs. And so, yeah, so basically it sounds like Will Conroy helped him learn how to box out, like on rebounding and stuff, so that he could basically shield and use his body uh, to shield off DBs to make catches and, and make really tough contested catches. And as, he, as he's shown the last couple of years especially, he is probably the – most elite receiver in college football when it comes to, to uh, when it comes to contested catches. Yeah, I, I texted Will. I said I saw this. Uh, Rome owes you. He, he needs to come in and catch your, you know, teach your bigs how to hang on to the ball. So. Yeah, I was gonna say real quick though, and Scott, you might correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I seem to remember when Washington played at Michigan uh, when uh, in the Jimmy Lake era, and Giles Jackson did not have. Uh, a great send off like at the end of that game i think did he get into it with some michigan fans um i don't rem- i don't remember that i do remember that he did not have a very good game though i thought i, I, I thought that. i remember him as he was leaving the field he was kind of getting he was kind of getting some from the michigan fans it wouldn't surprise me if that i think was he, the case. he gave it right back so yeah 
<clears throat> to say that he would be motivated tonight for this game might be a massive, well, massive understatement. Well, Josh, um, Josh posted the story on Giles Jackson from the audio that Kim got, and he basically said, um, you know, that's what fans do. He goes, I'm good with all my teammates, you know, all my former teammates and, and everything like that. And he goes, I don't really have any extra motivation for this game. It's just another game. But I think he, I think he would, wouldn't mind uh, getting one more win over his former teammates. Yeah, for, for some reason, I think the wide receivers are going to be more heavily involved in the game plan today, um, you know, with maybe the, you know, the short screens over the middle to Rome, the um, the fly sweeps to Jeremy. I think you'll see um, Rome carry the ball a couple of times. I wouldn't be surprised if you see Jeremy Bernard in the Wildcat. I think you're going to see some things like that where we're going to see a little bit more of the utilization of these wide receivers. And um, I, I thought one of the wildest things that set the tone for the game was early in the game. What was it? The second or third play of the game. He went deep to Jalen Polk and it was kind of like buckle in Texas because this is going to be what you're going to get all day. Um, kind of expecting one of those moments early as well. Well, it'd be nice. It'd be great for Washington's offense to have something like that happen. But, you know, um, Michigan's corners are not bad i mean they're, they're pretty darn good what's the name of their um well will johnson's their main guy yeah, he is but who, who's the guy from uh, liberty is that will johnson that's not will johnson from liberty where in liberty what are you talking about liberty liberty, the liberty college yeah wasn't no i want to say is that wallace oh you know umass umass is it wallace yeah i think it is okay i think it was but you know they've they've had some uh they've had some you know, they've got some good good guys back there that, yeah, he was at UMass. Wallace was at UMass. So um, they've got some quality back there. But I think a lot of it has been helped by their pass rush and the fact that they can get pressure and control things up front. And if you can do that, it makes it so much easier on your secondary. Well, um, I think that if Washington can keep Michael Penix um, you know, from getting pressured too much. I think Washington can make some plays on that defense uh, as good as it is. And they are talented back there. I just don't, I don't know if there's any defense that I would ever say uh, would be able to keep up with Washington's sec, uh, wide receiver group because it, it just, it has yet to happen. And, and I'd be shocked if it happens in this game. Yeah. The other thing to keep your eye on is, you know, Dylan Johnson said on Saturday, he's not a hundred percent. So it is, and Washington rode him pretty much for Oregon and Texas. Tybo got in a little bit, but we I was kind of surprised we didn't see Will Nixon. Uh, the Texas game, Sam Adams didn't even suit up. How comfortable are you with Tybo getting 10 carries, Scott? Um, Not as comfortable as I would be if it had been Cam Davis. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I, you know, Tybo isn't a he isn't a guy who's going to be super physical in the running game. His his. His game is more about explosiveness, making guys miss in in, uh, in space and, and doing things like that. Will Nixon would have to be that guy. And I could see Will Nixon getting some carries this game. Um, but I, I really think that um, Dylan Johnson's health, like you said, Kim, is going to go a long way in determining, you know, his availability, whether what he's able to do is going to go a long way in helping Washington win. Because if Michigan sends a blitz. Dylan Johnson has shown that he's really good at picking up the blitz. Will Nixon is good. He's not great at it. And Tybo is still learning. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Is that yeah. a situation where they might bring in Richard Newton? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah, just a real interesting note. Had a chance to talk to Cam Davis a little bit. And when we got to see 15 minutes of uh, practice on Saturday, which is basically stretching. But uh, Cam Davis and guard Memelar on the sidelines doing rehab drills. Yeah, I never want to go through rehab. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those guys, I mean, that was just some ugly stuff that they had them doing. And I mean, I just can't even imagine having to do this nonsense while you got You're talking your- about the stuff with the rope and all that kind of stuff that they were oh, doing? God. No, they were pushing heavy sleds for about 40 yards bending over and just pushing and just pushing, you know, just grinding on those things, just pushing it down 40 yards, pushing it back. And then it was it's guards turn and they're just looking like we're just pushing weight. And these guys are and it's hard. It's hard. And 
you know, you got your guys out there preparing for a bowl game and you're rehabbing. So, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Sisyphus, man. They're Sisyphus. That's who they yeah. are. Yeah. So, um, hey, just, uh, you know, before we close this out, just a couple of other quick notes. Uh, Johnny Nansen got hired at Texas as co-defensive coordinator. It's uh, coming from Arizona a little bit. We, I, we'd heard that rumor, you know, for a couple of weeks. A little surprised to see that move. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, I I've never had a problem with Johnny. I know that he had his own demons and he and Sark together were kind of like um, what's their face? Uh, the toxic twins from uh, Aerosmith, you know, I mean, those two when they were here at the University of Washington, I really I really hope for both of their sake that they have beaten that enough to where. If they're hanging out together, they aren't going out and 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 doing things that that could jeopardize their future professionally and personally. So, um, but you know, Johnny Nansen has proven to be a relatively good uh, defensive coordinator, and he's going to be learning from one of the best defensive coordinators in the country, in Pete Kwiatkowski. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, and that position opened up when Jeff Choate, the former Washington coach, uh, took the head job at was it UNLV or Nevada? Which one? Nevada. Nevada. Yeah. And then uh, a lot of the talk around the media day um, on Saturday, Jim Harbaugh was getting you know pestered about possibly going to the NFL and what they're telling recruits about the possibility and upcoming recruiting, more recruiting violations. But, you know, the word is seems to be if, if, if he lives, because there's a lot of talk about people worried about uh, Michigan coming after Kalen DeBoer if uh, Harbaugh left. But it seems, you know, that the Sharon Moore uh, would be the guy, and he's the guy who took over while Harbaugh was under suspension. But it sure seems like Sharon Moore would be the guy. Yeah, if if Sharon Moore wasn't the guy beforehand, his six game stint as the head coach proved that he should be the guy. Yeah. Also, you know, um, the word down here on Kalen DeBoer's contract extension is he just put pretty much doesn't even want to deal with that until after the season. I don't know if you saw the quote from Troy Dannon about um, Kalen DeBoer and the contract, just wanting to delay any talks on that, where Kalen said, I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious. I don't know if you saw mm-hmm. that or not. So um, that was pretty interesting. Also, uh, quote, by the way, what's that? It's a good quote. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, the coach is really taking it all in. If you had to guess, what coach do you think is taking it in more? Oh, than come it? on. There's only one choice. Who? Jamarcus Shepard. No. Nope. Um, Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt. He's taking it all in because he's leaving after the season. And, you know, so he's yeah. going to a program that probably doesn't have a chance to be in this position. Yeah, you know, he's doing it for career advancements, of course, you know, going yeah. to be a defensive coordinator. And that's, a, you know, you know, then his next stop would probably be a defensive coordinator, a, you know, big time school and then being a head coach. But, yeah, Eric Schmidt, you know, on Saturday, he was taking it all in, all in, you know, because he's, you know, these are his partners. These are running buddies. He's been around these guys for a long time. So, you know, it, it's kind of scary, you know, taking on a new position and leaving a program like this and. That's rolling. Yeah. Well, especially since he doesn't really have any connections with Sean Lewis, which is, who is going to be his head coach. I mean, they've apparently become fast friends, according to Schmidt, after having a few conversations and such. But when you kind of put your career, you know, momentum and trajectory into into a guy's hands that you barely know at all. Yeah, that can be a, that can be a bit daunting, I would think. Yeah. And the, and the conversation I had with Courtney Morgan, because there were rumors of Courtney going back to um, uh back to USC because, I mean, he went to Manchester High School, excuse me, Westchester High School. He played with Larry Triplett back in the day, you know, and I asked him about that. And he goes, no, he goes, you'd be a fool to leave, you know, working for Kalen DeBoer, you know, and it's kind of a scary thing because it's such a good, you know, culture up here. Seattle's a great place to live. Washington is a great school. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, Kalen talked about coaches on his staff, having other offers, having great opportunities and electing to stay here. So, It'll be interesting to see who fills the position that Eric Schmidt is um, leaving open and see if as well if there's any other uh, coaches uh, leaving for, you know, possibility of bigger positions. So something definitely to keep your eye on. Hey, Kim, uh, also real quick, just with all the stuff you just laid out with, you know, finding a replacement for Eric Schmidt, 
DeBoer's extension, all of those things, UW kind of football related. You know, Washington fans, I'm sure, would love to get all that stuff sewn up as soon as possible. I'm sure we would as well. But the Washington coaches have earned a break. So after tonight's game, they're not going to be they're going to be scattered. And and the other tough part about this, too, is that this happens right at the same time as the coaches convention. And, you know, so so typically coaches would go to the convention and they'd be a part of that stuff. Well, these coaches have been busy game plan and prep and practicing, doing all that stuff. So once this game is over tonight, they're going to be going, they're going to be scattered. They're going to be with their families, at least, I think, for like the next week. That's what we've heard, uh, that they'll probably be taking at least a week off. And so for any Washington fans that are looking for immediate answers to things like divorce contract or uh, coaching replacements, come and going, all that kind of stuff, portal stuff, you know, it's it's going to take a minute. It's going to these guys need to take a breath before they take another step. Yeah, I've heard their coaches, you know, get a week off. They're going to take a week off. And I'll tell you what, when I get back, I'm taking a couple of days to sleep and I'm taking a couple of days off. And, you know, you guys need to. When do we have a basketball game, by the way, Chris? They're on the road. Oh, Thursday. No, no. Arizona State Thursday. Is that is that here? Yeah. It's in Seattle. Don't please tell me it's not an eight o'clock start. Uh, It's an eight o'clock start. Odd. (laughs) Yep. Oh, your favorite. (laughs) <laughs> See now you get now you're complaining about late starts. I thought Scott was the only one that complained about late starts. I am not the only one who complains. You are about not late definitely starts. not the only one. No. Eight o'clock on Fox Sports One Thursday night, January 11th. I just need to recharge my batteries. So I, you know, tonight's going to be a long night. And it's who big, does? Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, the victory. If you think it's a late night for you? Yes, it's going to be a late night for you. It's going to be a later night for Scott and I. Yeah, the victory celebration is going to go long into the night, so um, I'll make sure and get Softy's reactions on the sideline as well. So he, he cried, he cried like after the Sugar Bowl. What's he going to do after if they win the national title? Oh my God! When Dylan Johnson went down and they stopped the clock. Oh, I wish I would have filmed Softy. Oh my God! I thought he was going to pop a valve. I thought he was going to run out and grab a referee. I mean, he was he was. He was popping. He was a different shade of red with that vein on his neck, just going 100 miles an hour. So I didn't uh, I didn't see it, but I saw it talked about on the on the dogman on the hardcore board. Apparently, um, Brock Heward was being interviewed for, so with some radio down maybe in Phoenix, and he and they were asking him about that play where where Johnson got hurt, and I guess apparently he he. <laughs> I guess he allowed people to to uh, peek into the moment where he saw that. And I guess it was like he was screaming at his television to, like, find people to drag him off the field because <laughs> it was like, figure out a way to get off the field. He goes, if, if I'm Dylan Johnson, I'm literally just crawling on my hands and knees trying to get off that field without help. And but, you know, the answer to that is they got to change the rule. I mean, it's they just absolutely do. They have to change that rule. So, yeah. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. It's going to be a long day. It's going to be an eventful day. It's going to be a historic day. And uh, this is a game people will remember until they take their last breath. So Scott Eklund, let's wrap it up. Yeah, it's, you know, it's go time, man. It's, it's hard to believe we're here. Um, I thought, I think everybody thought Washington could win a a conference title. I think everybody thought Washington had a good chance of going to the, the playoffs, if they won a conference title, I don't think anybody expected a perfect season and for Washington to be in the national title game. I just this is uncharted territory at, at this point in um, in Washington's football history. And so um, enjoy a Husky fans, because I was I was a student at UW in 1991 and it's been 33 years or 32 years. So it. Washington needs this. They need it badly. And and Husky fans need it badly. Let's let's hope they can come out with a win. Their second uh their first um uh national title uh un un uh not unsharing, but you know, one that they don't share with somebody. And uh that this will be huge. Chris Fetters, wrap it up. Yeah, I, I think I posted this on the board after the Sugar Bowl win for Washington that um my first big trip when I was a kid, I was nine years old, was going with my dad and my stepmom at the time. And we went to L.A. Uh, for the 78 Rose Bowl. 
And that was the game where Washington was massive underdogs to Michigan. Um, Bo Schembechler was in his pomp going up against a third-year coach and Don James that no one really knew about nationally. And they had some kind of unknown quarterback at the time, a junior college kid named Warren Moon. Um, And all Washington did was go ahead and win that game 27-20. A couple picks at the end. I think Michael Jackson, I think, did Nesby Glasgow have have a pick near the end there as well. But either way. They, they were able to salt the game away at the end, much like Washington has been able to salt away some games at the end of this season. Um, I'm not I'm not seeing a lot of parallels necessarily between the 77 team and the, and the 2023 team, but I am seeing some parallels in this football game between Washington and Michigan, especially when it comes to my life, because that was the first big trip I had ever made. That game pretty much solidified my fandom as a kid growing up following my dad's team. And uh, it's kind of followed me ever since. And so I would say just this last month or so and, and not to, you know, your your guys' situation has been different. But, uh, you know, personally for me, having to go through a move for the first time in 25 years in the last month on top of all the stuff that has gone on here, it feels like I've just tried to compartmentalize things and just kind of get into this bubble. And so I don't think I've really appreciated just how historic this run has been for the Huskies. And I think win or lose tonight, I'll come out of it and, you know, give me a week or so. I'll have some thoughts on it for sure. And, uh, you know, but let's make it a long night tonight, guys. Let's uh, let's soak this stuff up and, and, uh, and, and milk it for all it's worth because, you know, this is like Scott said, this is the first time there's, they've gotten a chance to be an unquestioned undisputed number one national championship team. And if they win the game tonight, this will be the greatest game in the history of Washington football. No question about it. And this team will be the best team in the history of Washington football. 1991 was incredibly special. I almost think if you put those two teams head to head, 91 might beat 2023. You never know. Be a hell of a simulation to have. But uh, if they are able to pull it out, and I think they will, that uh, there's just going to be. There's going to be a lot to talk about tonight, guys. That's all I can say. Going to be a great game tonight. And, um, you know, had a chance. I was texting with Jen Cohen, and um, she's an emotional wreck. Uh, her her DNA is all over this program. She built this. She had a strong hand in building. She had a strong hand in getting Chris Peterson to come here. She had a, you know, she, she was the one who pulled the plug on Jimmy right away when she knew it wasn't going to work. And she hired Kalen DeBoer when not a lot of people knew who Kalen DeBoer was. And she'd been at Washington like 23 years. So, you know, Jen Cohen's heavily invested into that. And she's down here for the game. Also uh, had a chance. Uh, you're going to kind of crack up at this a little bit. But saw Dan Lepsey. Dan Lepsey is here. You know, the old uh, guy who worked in the athletic department. Him and Craig. I, I'm trying to remember Craig's last name. They're down here doing stats uh, for the bowl game. So, Sarge. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Sarge is here, and then, you know, shout out to Bart. Bart Fulmer's been the equipment manager. We're on our eighth head coach. He's on his ninth because he's been here ever since Don James. So Bart Fulmer, the equipment guy who's seen it all. Uh, Shannon Kelly in marketing has been, you know, right working side by side with Jen. She's been at University of Washington for a long, long time, and her DNA is all over this. And, you know, the guy that we deal with on a regular basis, the guy at University of Washington we deal with more than anybody else, Jeff Bechtold, has also been here since the Don James Day. And, uh, you know, Jeff has just been uh, magnificent to us, this, you know, this this year. So, you know, just shout out to those guys. You know, there's some of us have just been through a lot of wars. We've been doing this since like, like 1997. You know, some of these people have been there since, you know, day one with us and we've been there, you know, for such a long time. So I just put out, you know, some some friends saying this just means more to us because of what we've been through. Michigan hasn't been through the you know, they've been through some a little bit of a dark time, but they haven't been to the valleys and the canyons that we have over the years. And it just means more to us. You know, Michigan gets that national attention. So many of the teams and I mentioned this on the message boards. So many of the people that are going to be tuning in to watch this game 
haven't seen Washington at all this year. They probably haven't seen Washington play forever. It's going to be the first time in seeing Washington, not only in a long time, but this year specifically. They haven't seen Michael Penix or Roma Dunzi or some of these other guys. So they're going to chance get a, get a chance to see Washington. When I talked to Troy Dannon, he said revenues this year have been the best they've ever been. Revenues are way up and they need to be way up. So it'll be interesting to see what season tickets are for next year. So it's going to be a long day. It's going to be a long, hard work, and we will grind, and we will be done when we're done. And we won't be done when the clock says a ter- certain time. We're going to give it all to you guys. We're going to stay up as long as needed. We'll get it to you. We'll have a great podcast after the game, and uh, we'll have stories, stories, stories. And uh, if you're not following me on Twitter, follow me on Twitter. I'll have a lot of video that I'll post out on Twitter from pregame. I'll have some pregame notes, and Scott and Chris will take my Twitter stuff and put it on the board. So it's going to be a long day. So um, that's why we do this, isn't it, guys? Scott, do you remember when you wanted to quit? Yes, I do. And I still don't feel bad, but I'm glad you didn't let me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just, no. Uh-uh. If we're doing this another year with Tyrone, so are you. We're not doing yeah. this. I was pissed. I was pissed at you. So, And it takes a lot to get me pissed. So. Oh, I was pissed at everybody. Yeah. I was pissed at everybody. I, I mean, <laughs> Jen Cohen, and I know she wasn't in charge at that point, but Jen Cohen, Scott Woodward, all those guys keeping him, him around. Oh, I was just so sick and tired of seeing Tyrone Willingham with his with his microphone flipped up on top of his. Oh God. Ugh. Yeah. What would, yeah. what does what do, who do who do you think Tyrone Willingham is rooting for tonight? Do you Michigan. think he even has a do you th- do you think he even thinks Washington has a rooting interest for him? He's probably no. not even watching the game. He's watching a TED talk or something. <laughs> no, I bet I bet he's watching like some golf some thing. golf tournament in Coral Gables or something. Yeah, I used to coach that. I used to coach that team. I was no, golf, golf's in golf's in Hawaii this week, guys. Oh, okay. Well, there you so, go. Of, actually, it's at a course that Kim and I have both played. Yeah, and also big shout out. You know, since 1997, we have subscribers have been with us since day one. We do. We have plenty of subscribers have been with us 240 months. We have plenty of subscribers have been with us 100 months. It's it's amazing. Uh, our retention rate is really, really high. We built a hell of a community. And it's not always fun at time being the bartender behind the bar trying to keep the peace. But uh, we seem to do a pretty good job of it. So let's go ahead and wrap this up and uh, just keep it tuned here at dogman.com. So uh, also uh, when's our promo run and Chris, it, I think it ends tonight. If I remember right, I don't, I don't think it goes through till Tuesday, but I could be wrong. I'll double check that, but I pretty sure I'll, I'll post something uh, in this story to let people know uh, when the promo is ending. Shoot an email. Let's extend it a couple of days. Okay. Um, okay. Well, right. that's, I, lo- I like your confidence, Kim. I appreciate your confidence. <laughs> all right. Hey, for all of us, all of us at dogman.com, including all of our former interns, Joe Kaiser, our first ever intern, is going to be here with his son, and he is an absolute wreck. And uh, Josh Watka is going to be with us today. And, you know, Jack Hen- McCoy- Henry Han. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. Jonathan Martone. Martone's going to be here. Eric Dorr is going to be here. So we've had a lot of amazing interns. So for all of our interns, everybody at the network, Brandon Hoffman, Greg Biggins, Blair Angulo, all of those guys. Cooper Petenia. Yeah, just all of these guys. Why do I feel like this is a farewell speech to the troops or something? What are we doing here? No, it's an invitation to the party, boys. It's an invitation to the party. So let's get this done. For all of us at dogman.com, I'm Kim Grinalds. Along with Chris Fetters, Scott Eklund, go dogs.